Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Anything But Typical, the podcast, not anything else. But um, so you're in for a treat. Uh, you may remember Michelle Tuno Bulow from her podcast. Gosh, I think it was last spring, wasn't it? Something like that or fall, I guess. Something like that. Yeah, about really a good. Ago. Yeah, about a year ago. So um, the funny thing is, is I asked Todd first, and he said, "No, her story is way more interesting. She needs to be your first guest." So this is pretty cool. This is our first husband and wife. You know, we'll have to have some sort of a poll on LinkedIn or whatever. See who's yeah. who's was more engaging. We'll find that out. But anyway, you're in for a treat. Um, I've known Todd longer than I've known Michelle. And so anyway, here, Todd, here's the question. So being the adventure seekers that you and Michelle are, you are on your next adventure in Dubai and you're, um, you know, getting ready to bungee jump out of, you know, 200 story building or something like that. And as you're taking the elevator up, somebody sees you and before the doors close, they're like, hey, that's Todd and Michelle. What would you like them to be saying about you, Todd? Yeah, um, it's a good question. By the way, we did just rappel down a 200-foot waterfall in Costa Rica. So that was a, <laughs> you're not that far off. But uh, no, I think what Michelle and I, we, we, we like to, to try to inspire others through our actions and our servant leadership. So I would hope they would say, hey, there's Michelle and Todd. You know, they're doing amazing things to help people out. And it's inspired me to do whatever X, Y, Z. I think that uh, if we can do that, I and people talk about that as we leave, that would be make, make me uh, very happy. Uh, I'm big on servant leadership and I'm big on, you know, in business development, I think too many people walk into a room and say, how can I sell you? I prefer to walk into a room and say, how can I help you? And then the sell will come eventually. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of, I guess, how Michelle and I have approached life is, you know, hopefully we can inspire others to make um, a change in whatever they're doing or in, impact people um, around them. Man, that is beautiful. Uh, I love it. And I know, Ben, you want to get into more of his background yeah, and accolades. That foreshadowing. I, I think the first five questions I wanted to ask you, Todd, were somewhere it related to exactly what you just talked about. But I'll, I'll give the listeners a brief uh, background of, of kind of where you are, what you do, and then we'll dive right in. So Todd's the principal and co-founder at Dual Boots Partners, which I, I want you to be able to give them a quick description here in a second. And, and also, Gary had just talked about Michelle. Uh, Todd's also the co-founder and helps with the, the finance and IT side for Bella Tuno. So as we get into things like the servant leadership and, and some pieces with that, with the current company, with Dual Boot, can you give everybody a quick description of what it is? And then I've got a follow up from there. Yeah, so we're a business and software development company. Um, we build great software, but we really focus um, and base our success on whether it helps grow your business. And I think that's kind of what people have known us have known um, about working with us. Um, yes, we're a development company, but when you work with us, we're going to extend our network and hopefully help you grow your business, whether it be sales and marketing and other areas through our connections, as well as build great software. Yeah, and you've got a really big focus on that being the measuring stick, right? Of 
you even put on your LinkedIn, you base success on whether it helps your business grow. So talk to us a little bit about how that became the measuring stick for the company. You know, I think uh, having been an entrepreneur in the past or been around entrepreneurs, um, you don't realize how hard it is and you don't realize, and a lot of the people that are involved with you as you go through your entrepreneur journey, you don't realize how much they helped you out until you actually get to the other side. And so that has been a big thing for me and my two business partners, Daniel De La Cruz and Ben Gilman is we've been there, we've done it, we've, fa- we've succeeded and we've failed. Let us at least help you along that path. And then we try to hire people at our company that have that mentality of servant leadership. Um, and that may mean, hey, we're not maybe a good fit for you on the development side, but we can introduce you to 10 investors in the community that can help your business grow or a, a good legal team, or in your case, a good accounting team, uh, you know, or a good financial planner. Um, so I think for me, just allowing that entrepreneurial journey of the people that have helped me along. And I feel like I owe that back to the community for the people that have helped me get to where I am now. And the way that, that you're talking about it, especially when you step back and you're, you're talking more macro, right? That it makes a lot of sense from a business and structural standpoint, but it's also more difficult to execute that on the day-to-day. How do you, how do you keep that as the internal culture in the company to make sure that internally and the other employees and other people in the company that they're not shifting their mindset of bottom line and sticking yeah. with the that measuring stick? I mean, it's, it's not definitely not an easy thing as you grow. We've, we've grown rapidly. So we started a little bit over three years ago. We're about 200 people now. So your culture does change as you grow, Mm -hmm. but I try to empower, or we try to empower the employees to make impacts to people in their network. Um, You know, a good, a a very like a good example would be, you know, when COVID hit, I don't know if you remember, like kind of the meat crisis that we had and all that stuff and people couldn't find groceries. And we ended up then going and buying through Omaha steaks, you know, different, you know, steaks and meals for people and had to just show up on their door. Was that a development thing? No, but that was just the right thing to do for people that were staying at home. And I encourage the people that work for us, if you see someone in a down spot or something that's happening, it doesn't cost, you know, go ahead and do, buy whatever you need to do or, or do take them out to lunch or whatever. So I try to transcend and, and set a model for that. And it does get harder to the more and more you grow. Um, and again, looking at the bottom line at the end of it, um, I think the hardest thing with a kind of servant leadership model, and Gary's a very good uh, person at this, is it took me 20 years to kind of build my network up to start really seeing the fruits of the servant leadership model really playing out. And it's not always a quick win. So when you're in sales and you get again back to your question, like, what did you do for me last quarter? Right. You have to intentionally plant these seeds knowing that it may not, it may not bear fruit for 10 years. And it may be a different company where it's bearing fruit. So a lot of the stuff I've done, uh, it has nothing to do with dual boot. It was stuff I did in the past, but now people are able to help me at dual boot, you know, because of what I did for them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm going to, we are going to get to other things, I promise, but I want to keep going down this servant leadership a little bit more because another thing you do is volunteering impact, giving back, things like that. So you've got what Bellatuno does, 
You are the president at the Charlotte Chapter of Society for Information Management, or, or SIM, um, the Speedway Children's Charity. There's, you've got a laundry list of places where you're on their board or you're volunteering in some capacity. This is going to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I guess, but with everything else you've got going on, the businesses, family, trying to explore, yep. um, why or how are you making that a priority in your life? Because you very easily could be focused on the one or two things and, and not have the time for all of this volunteering. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just because of personal things that have happened to me in my journey. Um, my brother-in-law passed away from a drug and alcohol addiction. And my wife and I never wanted another family to go through that. It was the worst day and still continues. We still have ramifications in our family with, with that. So that's how I got involved with the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Um, I was eventually the board president. Um, the beauty about what I do is, is I'm a networker. So I don't have to execute in the details, but I can connect you to someone that can. So when people say, oh, you're involved in a lot of things. Yes, but I'm a networker. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. It's the classic like, what is a business development person? All you guys do is golf all the time. Like they don't get it until they actually, you know, oh, well, the, the, the sale came in. So I'm involved in a lot of things that personally have impacted me. Um, so even with dual boot, like I'm a big pro, uh, proponent of STEM education because I think our, uh, the United States is way behind. We do business all over the world at dual boot. We have offices in Russia and Uruguay. In Russia, they're starting STEM heavily in third grade. And I see this happening. And then I see like in the state of North Carolina right now, there's 34,000 open IT positions. Um, I see that Charlotte still is one of the lowest cities with upper mobility. Um, and then I see programs like Carolina FinTech Hub. Um, I don't, I think you've actually had Tarek on, on board on this call before, or maybe not. Um, not yet. If not, you should, but, but people like that doing programs where they've trained 130 kids that are in, um, with the potential of upward mobility with in technology, with the guarantee that they'll have a $50,000 uh, uh, for $50,000 salary um, if they complete their program. And they've had something like a hundred people graduate of 134 and of those 134, um, like 25 to 30 are now making a hundred thousand plus, you know, talking about a way to, to incorporate everything you believe STEM yes. nonprofit giving back, upward mobility, uh, you know, that, that, that's, so to answer your question, I'm drawn to the things that have impacted me. And that's where I encourage anyone that gets involved with nonprofits, go to the things that you've been impacted with, because then it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like, you know, it feels like you're calling. And, mm -hmm. and so, um, but I've been guilty of going to things that I was involved with something in New York city that had like run DMC and all these amazing bands on it. And it was a flop for me from a nonprofit side. I mean, they do amazing work, but I just wasn't connected to it. And it, it, I was drawn to run DMC and all these people, right? <laughs> I wasn't drawn to the true passion behind it. And I think you just learn that as the older you get that, you know, yeah. don't be, don't be persuaded by the bright lights, you know, go through the, go through things and follow things with your, with your heart, with your causes that you believe in. And, and then it doesn't feel like a job. And, and, and then you can make a significant impact. So everything I've done has been around that. Um, and the cool thing is like, I'm part of American football without uh, barriers. I love football. I love sports. I love traveling. I got connected with a Carolina Panthers football player by the name of Gary Barnage. 
Gary was doing some stuff at the Charlotte Rescue Mission. He's like, hey, Todd, I take NFL players overseas every offseason. I don't have time to organize it. Can you help me organize it? I was like, sure. Next thing I know, I'm on the board. And now I've traveled the last 10 years to Hungary, Egypt, Turkey, Brazil, Portugal, Germany with players like Todd Gurley, Marshawn Lynch, you know, and it's I've been able to intersect like my love of sports, my love of giving back with my love of travel. And so it's a, a pretty cool opportunity uh, just to be able to do that. And yeah, then I, can, I was going to say name drop people now, too. So, you know, it just makes you street cred. It gives you the street cred. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is you said that you're you're a natural kind of networker. And I would say and this is a nuance and it's not a correction. It's just a point of difference. You have always been an others focused connector to me. And there are people that are networkers that kind of go back into what you said at the beginning of this podcast. They come into the room looking for how can I sell you? or what can you do for me <laughs> versus you have always approached it from the time I've met you from a, Hey, how can I serve you? And it's not lip service. It's not servant leadership in air quotes. It's, it's like the real deal. Um, that's been what I've loved so much about you. And what's funny is you and I had some intersections probably back at IXL back in the day, you yeah. know, 21 years ago, and we never met. <laughs> but um, It wasn't until I think I came back to Charlotte six years ago when we met probably at the Harris Y. I think that's where we first met, maybe. Yeah, I said, who's that that machine over there while I'm just sitting there doing my dumbbells? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to work out with Gary, but uh, yeah, he, he came up to came up to my CrossFit gym because uh, I own a CrossFit gym also, and did a Murph with us uh, earlier this year. Oh, that wow. Was, and I mean, Gary does a Murph every Monday. So it was, it was fun. Like, having, well, Ben, know. I wish I would have, well, I wish we would have known each other a couple of years ago, because I'll give you a good example of intersecting things you love with charities. So when I was board president of the Charlotte Rescue Mission, um, I was noticing people that were going through the program. It's a 120-day residential program. There's a men and women's program, but the men in particular were gaining 20 to 30 pounds in those 20, in those 120 days. Um, and we had this big warehouse space. I was like, this is a perfect place for a CrossFit gym. <laughs> so I ended up partnering with uh, Michelle Crawford, if you know her from CrossFit Rising. Uh, yeah. We ended up building uh, a CrossFit gym at the rescue mission. And originally... We used the CrossFit name. They did a TV thing on us and CrossFit was not very happy that we used the name, but then they found out what we were doing for it. And they gave us a free CrossFit membership. Nice. Wow. And so the cool thing about that was, you know, when you get the CrossFit community behind something, it's, it, it kind of runs itself. So they have programs that every uh, two o'clock, they have a class. And we reason we did two o'clock was because most CrossFit gyms don't have people working out at two o'clock. So the coaches were free at that time. So the coaches could come down and serve mm -hmm. uh, with the men and then go and do something else. But uh, again, another way to intersect things that you love doing with uh, giving back. Um, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's neat. So how did you go from, you know, you were in supply chain, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, yep. at IXL. How'd you go from that into like, you do some, 
your your firm does some hardcore coding and software development. How did you make? What was the journey like going from supply chain to that? Well, with supply chain, I was always in technology. Okay. So I was always on the software side of building out products. Um, so I've been blessed. I've always been teamed with great software developers and people, and I've seen what it's like to build a successful product. And so with Dual Boot, it's just taking that same model and scaling it now. Um, and so, you know, we're pretty agnostic on technology. We actually just signed one of our first, uh, we're doing a blockchain deal coming up. So we're doing a lot of cutting edge things, but we're also doing kind of tried and true products as well. Uh, but it's not much different than having a product company. I did learn though, um, through the years of having two other SaaS companies, you, you either have to decide, are you a product company or a services company? You can't be both. Um, and the reason is if you're a services company and you try to be a product company, the product doesn't get enough love and attention. And if you're a product company that tries to do the services, vice versa, the services don't get enough attention. So you have to make that decision. And there's a lot of great companies out there. MailChimp's a good example of that out of Atlanta. Um, they are originally a services company. They found this, you know, e-marketing platform that they were using on the side and they said, screw it, let's go focus on the email marketing platform. And the company took off from there. And I learned that through the years um, of failures of trying to launch product companies within services companies um, that you can't be both. What, how do you guys categorize dual boot? Um, you know, I think we're at the heart of it, I guess a services company, but like I said, we, um, we really try to surround people with the expertise of building things, bringing things to market. And that includes the product side of it, but also the experience and process side of it as well. And the connections, um, but at the heart of it, I would say, you know, development software services company at the heart of it with a different twist. Right. So <laughs> and, and it's, it's, you know, it's, that, that's the hardest, the hardest thing about our sale is there's a thousand other companies that claim their development companies. Right. Right. So our whole sales channel is built on trust. And if we build the trust and we deliver, then we grow. I can't just cold call into places. I have to use my reputation, my name, or my team's names and our success that we have to grow our business. Um, and it really makes it hard in the services world. It really is hard to differentiate yourself because everyone's got banner. Everyone's got noise. At the end of the day, what you have to hold your, you know, your shingle on is the, um, the, the, the delivery model or the delivery that you're doing in the, in the service you're providing to your customers. I mean, you guys probably deal with that. I know you guys, I mean, how many accounting firms are there in the world, right? But you guys have the different flavor and it comes across in your branding and your messaging. Um, but at the same time, you're still competing with four other, you know, accounting firms or businesses firms yeah. or financial planning firms. Like, well, how do we differentiate ourselves from that? Um, and that's where I try to deal with our people with having that servant leadership and ingraining that in our culture um, around that side of it. I'm just curious about that from a talent acquisition standpoint, you know, you went, I, I remember when you left your previous firm, started dual boot, it wasn't all, all that long ago. What'd you say? Three years ago, four yeah, years, three years ago. So, yeah. so, um, you know, you were much smaller. Well, I wasn't, I, was, I wasn't smaller. Actually I'm larger after COVID. But... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you're much taller than I am, but that's not saying much. <laughs> so, um, no, but seriously, how do you, in a practical sense, identify somebody that is truly servant leadership oriented and it's in their DNA versus they're doing a pretty good smokescreen for you? It's hard, uh, especially during COVID, it was particularly hard because some of the things I used were non-COVID techniques, but I'll give you a good example. Um, we just hired a gentleman, Brock Campbell in Tampa. I went out, I'd, I'd never met him, but I'd heard great things. We, you know, COVID, it was hard to meet. We finally met in person. And the first place we went to was an accelerator down in Tampa. Um, and he walked in and he knew everyone's name and he, you know, he just paid attention to everyone. He didn't overlook anyone from the person that was at the, at the desk. Those are the types of people that I want to look, 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 look for or find are those people. I've had too many experiences where I've been at networking events and I, I call it the bird on the shoulder where people, I feel like someone's looking at a bird on my shoulder because they're trying to look around me. And that irritated the crap out of me. When I was 25 years old doing this stuff, like I know I didn't have much to offer, but it was so irritating to me that like you couldn't take five, 10 seconds to like learn my name, learn something about me without looking around my shoulder. So those are the types of people, again, having dinner with someone, do they say thank you to the, to the, to the server? Do they ask the server a question? Like those are the little cues you can find of what is this person's you know, true heart, uh, true heart and, and is it a potential service, servant leadership heart? Yeah, it's interesting. I found my favorite ones. last step of hiring is doing a meal out with the person. You learn so much when you see those types of things. I think you're hitting on a really important point. Yes, yep, absolutely. Um, so I wanna go back to what you were talking about of how difficult it is uh, in the services company to differentiate. So with what you were talking about at the beginning of the networking, the relationships, that that could take 20 years to bear fruit. Um, and yet that's a big piece of what's differentiating you today, but it's because you've been doing this and, and right. for 20, 30 years. So what are some other things that our listeners that are in that type of services company, but haven't been doing that for the 20, 30 years, other than starting, um, what are the other things that you, you guys are doing where you can show differentiation between yourself and a competitor? Yeah. So, I mean, a little bit is around experience, but we hire US-based product directors that have 10 plus years launching products. Um, so they can show you the shortcuts to get product to market. Um, and I always, I equate a lot to home building because you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, you can't have outsourced development or you can't do this. And I said, well, have you built a house lately? And they say, yeah. I said, who'd you use? Well, I use a general contractor. Okay. What did that general contractor use? Well, they had electrician and plumbers. Did those electricians and plumbers work for them? No, but you use a general contractor. And the cool thing about a general contractor, and this is the same with us in software development, that general contractor knows, hey, you want a beam in your house. You can do a beam from a you know, 1880 building and this costs you whatever XYZ amount, or we can do a couple two by fours and make it look like a beam. And it's going to give you the same appearance and everything. We'll get it to market quicker. You're not going to wait. You're not going to waste money. It's still going to be the quality you want. Um, and that's the same thing with building products. So like, what are the little things that we can do that get you to figure out product fit, for example, quickly, but you only have that with the experience of people that have built and, and, and generate product. I didn't, 
I didn't really realize when I was 28 and we were building a, a supply chain software company that I was involved with, I didn't realize the advantage of having experience, even though everyone would always tell me like, oh, the experience matters. I was like, no, it doesn't. Like I can do that. But you just learn. I mean, over time, you just learn. But the cool thing is to be able to teach someone what you learned is what's cool to me. So if I can hire senior level product directors or we can hire senior level product directors that can train our customers so they don't make the same mistakes and also train our team behind them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get you that experience. Everyone, everyone ends up winning in that, in that world. Um, again, with experience, the other thing I've learned is you know, we have two tech centers that are one in Uruguay and one in Russia that are our employees. But what you realize was the importance of having those US-based hours. Um, I had done a lot of work overseas in places like India and China, and it was so frustrating to me at 9 a.m. when I needed to get something done and no one was there. Um, so, you know, we've, we've, we have really built our product and our, our, our model to cater and build it to U.S.-based companies as they're scaling based on the hardships that we learned in building. You know, I've had two software as a service companies before this, my wife's company uh, on the retail side. So it's all lessons learned that we've learned. And my two other business partners have learned as well um, to build this out. So I gotta, I'm gonna take us way back, uh -oh. back to when you were a kid or high school, college, et cetera. Did you have it in your heart to be an entrepreneur, or did was that ever like, you know, formulating in your brain, or was there an aha moment after working for the man, if you will, like? Talk to us about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, a couple of things in my life. Uh, one, my mom was a nurse. So I think I saw inherently firsthand the servant leadership model. I would go to a store. My mom never told me what she did, but she was like, hey, your mom, jo Joanne, was the greatest. She did X, Y, Z for me. Like my mom never talked about it. So that, that was a servant leadership side of it. Um, the entrepreneur side, honestly, I owned a, me and my buddy Brett Bierman owned a landscaping company growing up. I didn't want to work as many hours as my other friends were. And I knew if I owned a landscaping company, I could make a lot more money and work a lot less hours. So I probably shouldn't admit that, but that's the truth. <laughs> um, and the third part of it is I was a late bloomer. Um, I graduated high school at about five, seven, 140 pounds. I graduated college at six, three, two forty. Um, and I always joke, I told, I, I told, uh, I always said, I used to pray to God that I wanted to be 6'3", 240. Um, unfortunately, he didn't answer my questions until I'm, you know, what am I now? I'll be 47 this weekend. I should have said, I should have specified 6'3", 240 at, at the age of 16, not at the 40. <laughs> but I think, I think always being the smallest person for a lot of the, like my growing up period, I, I began to empathize with the underdog or the people that were told that they can't be. And that shaped a lot of what I was, what I ended up doing as well. I still remember when I was in college, I came home one summer and there was this guy, Jamie Gornell. And he's like, Todd, you don't have to put up with crap anymore from anyone. You're like the biggest guy here in the room. And I never, it never really just registered until he said, like, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, and luckily I, you know, I didn't become like the, you know, someone trying to fight every time, but you know, it, it I think it always, that, angle is like I always want to root for the underdog because of that because I felt like I was the underdog no one believed in me I was too small you're not going to be this you're not going to be that um so to answer your I don't know I kind of hit a, several topics servant leadership the entrepreneur was because I <laughs> didn't want to work as many hours which is ironic because being a true entrepreneur you probably work more hours than people <laughs> but at the time when I was in high school I wanted to work less but 
Uh, and that was before anyone had landscapers back in the day. If I truly had been a true entrepreneur, I probably would have had one of the largest landscaping companies in New Jersey. But, uh, you know, I, I uh, pool time was more important than uh, working at that time. <laughs> it's funny how many landscapers we've had that started doing that in at, you know, in high school, right? Ben, I mean, we've had a, a, a few. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's harder now though because everyone has a landscaper. Back then, you did like you know you had to mow your own lawn, right? So yeah. So then a, a sixteen year old that has a lawnmower and says, "Hey, I'll mow your lawn," they're in business, but it's not. You're right; it's not the same today. Exactly. Yep. And I never had any of the costs. My parents paid for all the gas and the lawnmower and everything. So business. Your profit. Um. So as you, as you kept going, you founded multiple companies, right? Since, since you were doing landscaping as a, as a teenager. Um, if you had to start a new company over today, taking your lessons from all of these different styles and types of companies that you founded over the years, what are some of the must-have steps uh, that yeah. you have in your mind if you were to found so, a new company today? Yeah, so I, a couple of things. I've been blessed with the start. Like, so I... Have always been kind of on the founding teams, but not necessarily always the founder. If you you know you're doing a public, so yeah. I've seen both sides of it. Um, for me, from a founding a company, um, sales and marketing and product, those are the two things. Like, if you can sell and you have a, a semi decent product, you can pretty much do anything. And I think people often, and I we learned that in the first company we we helped start, we raised about thirty five million. We probably spent 34.9 million on the product. We had the best product. And when we ended up selling that company, I ended up got, seeing the competitors that we were losing to. Our product was so much better. They knew how to sell a market. We didn't know how to sell a market ourselves. And I think what a lot of people, you know, and I was, I was even as we're launching companies, I was always at this a lot. We can't, you know, our company's failing because we can't sell it, but we weren't going out and actually trying to sell it. And people don't realize that. Like going out and selling, it doesn't mean you send an email to someone. It doesn't mean like you put a Facebook post out there. It could be parts of those, but you've got to build a constant drumbeat of people and creating that perception that you're the best because perception ends up being reality, right? So um, there's some people that are really good at that. Like John Espy is really good at creating the perception and he's created really good businesses, but he's really good at starting with something small and people are like, they want to be part of it. I don't know what it is, but I want to be part of that. Like he's really good at that, um, that side of it. And that's a lot of the younger entrepreneurs that I meet, or I want to say younger, but they can sell something without even having a product. And to a lot of people, if you're an entrepreneur and say, well, I need to have a product again, not, not all industries, if you needed like a COVID drug that, that makes difference, but there's a lot of products you can sell. People should be able to sell without having an actual product. And that's where I look, I think is the most success are people that believe and can sell, um, with or without that product. I want to go back to one of the things that you talked about in, I mean, you, it's funny because you've got all the technical expertise, you've got all these interesting facets to you, and yet you described yourself as kind of a business development guy that loves to help connect people, my words, not yours, to the right, you know, for the right reasons to solve problems, et cetera. You and I have that similar heartbeat. We love doing that. What is it about that? You know, why 
why is that so hardwired into you? You you've re- referenced your mom as the as the nurse, but like connecting, a lot of people don't make that that leap in the business development world of truly trying to serve to connect the right people and using your resources or your old old term here rolodex you know your connections to help somebody else what what's the driver behind that uh again i think it's you know people have have invested in my life in the past um i am big about getting people to the starting line of a race not necessarily running the race they can run the race i just feel like where i grew up in new jersey i i was i was born at the starting line right there's other people in this down here in Charlotte that aren't born at that starting line. And I just get motivated and passionate about helping people get to that starting line to be able to run the race, allowing everyone the same opportunity to run the race, which it gets me motivated. I think it probably goes back to, like I said, when I was younger, I was always viewed as the smallest kid. You know, you can't make this team. You can't do this thing. You're too small. Um, and I had one of my friend's mom, this, uh, her name's Carol, Carol Louise. Um, she said, Todd, I can tell by your wrist size, you're going to be big. Don't listen to them. And I still remember like little like comments like that, like of certain people, she probably doesn't even remember saying that to me. Right. But that was like enough motivation. That was like the next day. So like I inherently try again, I'm always rooting for the underdog, but I always want to get people. I want everyone to run a fair race. You know, I know life's not always fair, but let me, let me help you at least in that journey. And if I can, I'll make the connection for you. Um, the other thing though, I like to help people that, um, are true to what they're doing. It's hard for me to help someone that just is like doing it for money or doing it for whatever. Um, and that's another area that motivates me on that side. Um, so. Another question that I want to go into, um, you talked about liking loving to, um, teach other people and. Um, you know, that have that knowledge transfer, et cetera. Um, Talk to me about, or talk to our listeners actually, about the the things that you're looking for in the right client or customer to help because not everybody I'm assuming is the right fit for you. And how do you determine what what's the right fit and then what do you do if they're not the right fit yeah so i mean for us the right fit is typically someone that can sell without a product i mean that's if we're working with a startup that's the no-brainer right like you can sell without a product so those are those are the easier ones to find the harder ones to find um, are the later stage companies and are they truly trying to build something better or are they just trying to support something our company, we want to help your business grow. And that can be a Fortune 500 company. That can be a startup. Where we're less interested in is where people are more in just like survival mode and having a product sit around and not around for growth. So those are the situations that are harder to find and especially hard to find in later stage companies because they have the budgets, right? So I can have 20 developers on this project tomorrow, but that product will never grow. It'll just stay there forever and ever and ever. The problem with that model, the challenge with that model is those 20 developers you put on that project, I can almost guarantee all 20 will transition out of that role because it's not interesting to them. And so Mm -hmm. the ones that don't transition out of that role, they're probably, you know, 
and nothing wrong with that. They're more support engineers. They don't, you know, it, you know, they're, they're status quo happy. We want engineers that are thinking outside of the box, growing, uh, learning the personal side of it. So that, that is probably the hardest thing for us to find those opportunities where it's not like that and not, um, Ben, you mentioned this about earlier, like kind of chasing the dollar, right? Cause you know, the 20 developer deals pay a lot of money, right? So, um, you know, have we done it a hundred times successfully? No, we've had some mistakes, but you know, we learn the hard way when we get people onto a project, they get bored and then they're either not happy and or looking to transition to something else. So you learn your lesson on that uh, through experience. Yeah. Um, you, you, this is a good segue with you hitting on, on employees there and, and inside the company. You have had leadership experience with a multitude of different types of businesses, meaning founding and startup stage all the way to now where you've got 200 plus employees inside of it. Um, how has your leadership, you as an individual, changed with different sizes and dynamics of companies? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was younger, I think I tried to control people and I tried to change the leadership model into more inspiring people. I can't control you. I mean, you it's like, you know, I think you learn that in relationships that you're in too. Like, you know, I'm not getting able to control and change you, but I can try to inspire things to change and, and give you, you know, give you the rope to, to make your own decisions. And I, I think that's really, for me, is, is around becoming a leadership that inspires, a leader that inspires. So, um, you know, I'll tell you, you know, what and where we need to do or how we need to, but not the how. You tell me the how, and I'll give you the opportunity. I'll give you guidance if you want it, but I want to empower you to determine the how. So like for us, it might, you know, I'll tell you, hey, we want to launch a new uh, market in Nashville, Tennessee. You need to target entrepreneurs, um, private equity, and uh, chief product officers. And then you tell me how we're going to do that, right? I could go and go and, and define exactly how we're going to do that. But one, that's not a scalable process. Um, and two, it kind of creates um, leaders in your organization that aren't truly leaders. They're more followers. And they're always looking for you to kind of be that crutch. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, again, it's all a lot around inspiration um, and not control. And it's hard. Like I never really had a mentor growing up. Um, and looking back in my career and some things, I was one of those controlled, I need to control everything. And like, if I didn't know about it, then it wasn't, you know, probably done correctly. And, and sometimes you just have to let go and hope that you've laid the framework and, and then move on. Well, and you, with that controlling model, you're the keystone, right? So if you're not there, the arch falls apart. So that, that also takes away from your, uh, your, your pool time and, and your, yeah, your travel exactly. time also. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's important to measure things too. I'm a big believer um, in breaking things down to like, what do we want to do for the year, two years, high level, but then breaking it down into 90 day chunks and then focusing on something for 90 days and then reassessing and going. Too often people try to do everything. And I've learned this as an entrepreneur if you try to do everything, everything gets done 70% and nothing gets done properly. So if you break it down to 90, 90 day goals and objectives, that really helps you in the long run. And I think the cool thing too, is at the end of the year and you, and you start measuring what you've gotten done and you like list it out, even if you feel like you haven't succeeded, you're like, holy cow, I've gotten 75 things done. I didn't realize I did that much this year. Yeah. 
Do you and the leadership team have a formalized process in dual boot for that, for the goal setting and the tracking and all that? Yep. Yeah. So we, uh, we loosely use something called the entrepreneur operating system, EOS. Yep. There was a book, uh, traction that was written. Actually, Gary, you might have sent me that. I don't know if yeah, you did. We, we use it in, internally also. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually shown so, so, on the um, podcast recently. It's come up a lot. Yeah. I, and, and there's a lot of, there's rhythm software here in Charlotte that has something similar with Patrick yeah. Team. Um, but yeah, I mean, we use, we use components of that, you know, with the rocks and, and things like that. And it's been, it's been very good for us. Um, especially along the, among the founders, when there's sometimes tension as you're growing, we, we, we try to do every quarter, we do every quarter, we go somewhere, it could be like up to the mountains and just one night to sit down, go through our rocks, and, but look on the past, what we've done over the last 90 days. And it really does start easing kind of that stress that you're feeling through the growth when you're like, oh, everything's going wrong. This, this customer's mad, this customer's. And then you scale back, you're like, hey, we just signed 15 new customers this quarter. Like we're doing something right. Yeah, there's two that might be thinking something's wrong, but let's think, let's remember the, the other 15 that we just signed. Um, so it's the, the I, I like the US model. Um, seems like you all do too. Yeah. 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 It's funny because whether it's that, that system, whether it's scaling up from Vern Harnish, which, you know, EOS kind of evolved from that, whether it's rhythm systems, which is also tied into Vern Harnish and scaling up. I mean, it's the same kind of stuff. I mean, it's simple, but overlooked principles, right? Yeah. You know, understanding where you're going, what you're core purpose, your core values, hiring and firing. And you've already been talking about those without even listing the core values. You said, we're looking for servant leadership and we're, you know, evaluating when, you know, does somebody engage with the hostess or the wait staff and engage with them versus demand from them, you know? <laughs> so um, I think that's important when you said that you and your, your, partners go off every quarter is it just the three of you or do you have an uh, like expanded leadership team talk to us about that no it's just the three of us uh that go and do that. i think that's important to get away from everyone uh we usually have a good meal and then conversation and build it out um i, I think that that's that's critical in my opinion you need to get away and get away from the distractions so we went last time we went up to the grove park Inn. one other time we went out cool. to a place in raleigh um and it's also a good time to celebrate what you've done, right? You know, and sometimes some quarters you're not celebrating what you did and, you know, it's just a flat time to reflect. But at the end of the day, the three, in our case, the three of us came together. We had a vision. It's happening. Yes, we're going to have tension as we grow, but it's good to have conversations, just the three of, three of you with no other distractions around um, to kind of hash that stuff out. How do you delineate roles and responsibilities between the three of you yeah so that was that's another important thing i actually learned this a lot with bella tuna too um but um i'm really good at business development and networking and and that side of it um my one business partner ben gilman is a uh, superior at technology so he's a cto um and then we have daniel de la cruz who's our operations he's a cpa worked at pwc master at operation side of it. So the three of us work off very well off of each other. Um, I also think like with, when we started Bella Tuna, my wife and I, 
And the reason you see finance and tech and things like that, I actually was the PR person too. We never intersected. <laughs> there was some overlap, but with a husband and wife team, we eventually did overlap and we'd sit in a meeting and like someone had to make the decision. That's where it got really hard um, being married and running a business. Um, she's a lot smarter than me, but it was hard for me to shut up in a meeting when I didn't agree. <laughs> and so that stress, so with, you know, but with Daniel, Ben and I, we complement each other very well. I think it's harder when you have two, um, two or three founders that have the same skill set. Um, not that it can't be done, but I think it helps when you can complement each other. Um, there'll be some overlap on things, but Daniel, Ben and I really do complement ourselves very well. I'd, I'd love so, to go into that go dynamic in, uh, with you and Michelle of not just in Bellatuno, but also just two entrepreneurs in the same household. Uh, is, is that something that you two share as part of the relationship of, hey, I've got this going on in my company, or I've got this that came up and you get to bounce ideas off each other? Or is it a, hey, we walk in and we try and shut it off? What does that look like? No, I think we're constantly trying to learn from each other. Um, she's had really cool opportunities. Um, you know, us middle-aged white males have been oppressed all of our lives, so we don't get as many opportunities. <laughs> but no, but she's had, because there's a lot of focus now on women entrepreneurs, she's won some pretty cool things like um, EY. Ernst Young has a thing called Winning Women. She's won that. So every year we go out to Palm Springs and learn from the best. Um she's, she's done a lot of other things. So I'm able to kind of use the things that she's learning to, to kind of help me on that side of it. Um, I do think it's the hardest thing about both kind of being entrepreneurs when we were younger. Um, I basically had to put some of the things I wanted to go start businesses to fund her business, which was Bella Tuno. Um, for a couple of years. So like, I just had a conversation with a gentleman right now. He's like, Hey, I want to go start something. I was like, well, your wife has a really cool business over here. Why aren't you helping her? You know, with that, he's like, well, I never thought about that. I said, yeah, invest in her. And then her profits can go invest into your company. And so, but you've kind of got to drop your ego to the side. Right. So it took, took her six, seven years to get this thing rolling. And I was kind of the background background of it, but now that it's rolling, it allowed me then to go start companies, along my journey um, on that side. But the challenge is we can never really turn things off. There is really, I mean, we do have vacations, but I don't think people really truly, it might be different now in most worlds because everyone's connected, but as an entrepreneur, you could be somewhere in the, like Michelle has a supply chain issue in China and we're in Costa Rica on vacation. Well, she's got to take care of that. Like it's just part of life, right? Mm -hmm. Now you do have the flexibility to be in Costa Rica when you want to and using Marriott miles and things like that. But still, like, I don't think people really truly believe, truly understand the weight of being an entrepreneur. I do think also on the entrepreneur side for her and I is like, we cannot kind of like be yin and yang to each other sometimes. So when she's down, I can boost her up. Or when I'm down, she can boost me up. Um, and in particular in Bella Tuna, the beginning, the first five years, I think the first three years, she wasn't really even making any money at all. But I didn't really tell her that because I believed in her. And so she made decisions without being fearful of financial impact. Um, probably not always the best recommendation, but for her case, it was. She's more creative when she doesn't feel constrained. And she went and, and, and ran with it. And, uh, and then I, I look back and I tell her like what she would made those three years and she about wants to kill me every time I say that, but that's okay. <laughs> it's funny. 
Ben and I were going to go in the exact same place, you know, so sorry to be stepping on you there, Ben. I'm glad you went with it. Um, a point of like a, a, an exclamation point on something that you said that I hope everybody paid attention to. And if they didn't, I'm going to hit it again. But that is, I mean, you started this thing with about servant leadership and that has kind of, you know, gone and rippled throughout this entire conversation. But I think it's it's one thing to say that, but a point of emphasis of what you just did, where you put some of your own things on hold to support somebody else who happens to be your wife. Well, that's a pretty big deal, you know, where, you know, self-sacrifice often... <laughs> accompanies that servant leadership and that's the hard part where you have to deny yourself in order to benefit somebody else and so i just think that's really cool what a great example of really trying to serve your wife because you believed in her yeah. and I, I think that was really awesome wisdom and advice that you gave to this other entrepreneur yeah well i i appreciate it. i mean i think her, what she did really, well, we started Bella Tuna when my brother-in-law passed away from a drug and alcohol addiction. So there was a purpose behind that business. And so I think we both brought, bought into that purpose, um, which made it then easier to be, not feel like it was, I was sacrificing, if anything, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think for husband and wives, I think if, and that's one of the things I try to do on the dual boot side is I try to incorporate the husband's wives or whatever organization, like to know that they're valued, they're, they're appreciated with different, like if you have, an, if we know you're having a, a anniversary coming in, we might send you a gift certificate to a restaurant to go out, like, and hopefully they feel that too on that side of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, my wife has crushed it. We're up to probably when she, you had her on the podcast, she was maybe 3 million meals donated. They're, they're at 606.5 million meals donated. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's been pretty cool to see that journey. And it's an easy thing to support when you see all the good that she's doing. Yeah. And if anybody hasn't heard that yet, it was the 23rd episode for anything but typical. And it was released on November 3rd of 2020. So go back and listen to that because that's a phenomenal story as well. Yeah. And if you're down in Charleston, or um, Mount Pleasant, go to Gwyn's. I was I was walking through Gwyn's with my wife, and we saw the Bella Tuna um, display, and I had to take a couple snaps and and uh, and talk with the folks there about your wife's product line, and they love it. They love the mission. It's really cool. People get moved by mission more than they do by product. Mm -hmm. Um. So Todd, as we get towards the end here, I want to flip the conversation a bit towards acquisitions, right? Because you've, you've had a couple of the company, multiple companies uh, be acquired that you founded or were part of the founding team or, or something in that capacity. Um, so first, what, uh, what are some of those things that you've learned by going through uh, acquisitions on the side being bought? I want to start there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing I've learned in the entrepreneur space is anyone, yeah, you got to be careful of some of the stories you hear because anyone can spin an acquisition into like the greatest thing that's ever happened. 
And then you're looking at like, oh my gosh, this person sold seven businesses. And you like peel back the onion and none of them were for money. They were for, you know, other things. So that's one lesson. Don't always believe the hype. Um, second is as much as, you know, people want to tell you that the culture or personality is not going to change once things get acquired. It does. It always does. Uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, sometimes you feel like the redheaded stepchild when you get acquired if you're the smaller company. Um, but you also have the opportunity to learn from other people that are uh, growing faster. I think the one thing I've learned as kind of an entrepreneur is, and you hear this a lot, you're, you're, you're kind of put into a, you know, am I a $10 million or $20 million entrepreneur growth? Or am I a hundred million dollars? Like there's different phases for everyone in that growth. And sometimes you leap, you reach your ceiling and then not that you need to recognize when you've reached your ceiling and someone else can take it to the next level. And I think that's what acquisitions help. And so when you get acquired, I think then you can learn from those people that have taken to the next level. So you can add that into your, you know, into your toolbox um, as you're growing. Um, the coolest thing for me, though, on a lot of this stuff is when we get acquired too, I learn, I meet more people and my network expands, which I love. So Gary, to your point, uh, IXL, I did a project with a, a guy in, um, in Europe, uh, a guy named Steve Conine, and ended up reading Fortune magazine. And uh, he's, he ended up starting a company called Wayfair, reconnected with him oh, about wow. a year ago. You know, but those are the cool things you get through acquisition is meeting some cool people um on that journey so we've to continue going down that acquisitions uh, path we've had differing opinions on this uh on the show about this do you believe in starting companies with the mindset of being able to eventually sell or be acquired um i think no actually <laughs> i don't but i also think you can't be naive that it's not going to happen I think so, every company has an ending. Where, where, when is that going to be? I can't tell you. Um, so I think you need to, you know, when you do your your entrepreneur operating system and things like that, you have to have the metrics and build the metrics into how do we want to scale. And at some point, that scaling might be meaning you're getting acquired. Uh, but I do not think you should go into a business because you see like, oh, this has an opportunity to get acquired. I've seen too many businesses that seem like a no-brainer to be acquired and. 20 years later, they're still not acquired or they're not even around anymore. I think if you're true to the purpose while you started the company and you set strategic direction, the acquisition potentially will happen down the line. The other thing I like to tell people when they start, like if they're purely starting a company, assume you're going to be doing that for 10 years. If you can't envision yourself doing it for 10 years, don't do it. And people look at me like I'm crazy like that, but most companies don't have some type of event happening for about 10 years. And when you hear about them like, oh, this company just got $2 million in funding, the company's already been around for four to five years, yeah. you know, and then you hear about their exit and it's already been around 10 years. So Bella Tuna is a good example. Like we've been around 16 years and I, it cracks me up. I still hear people say, oh, Bella Tuna, is that a new Charlotte company? I was like, oh, no, been around a while uh, on that front. Yeah. So is part of your your reason to say no there because of the purpose of the company where if you go in trying to be acquired where that's your target now all of a sudden the stuff you were talking about earlier of what's your measuring stick and making sure you're doing the things for the purpose of the company that would all get thrown away because now it becomes a bottom line game 
Yeah, and I think it's hard to build a culture too if you go into that mindset. Um, again, maybe you're only sharing that internally within your mind that you want to be acquired, but if you're doing it from a leadership standpoint, it changes the culture of that organization. Mm -hmm. I've been involved with organizations where they bring around, bring in the turnaround specialists, and you know what that means. Uh, they're trying to sell them in two years. Yeah. And it, it just def def deflates the culture of the organization. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, that's, I don't know if there's a topic that we've had more differentiation on with this. We've had people say dead set when you're doing your day one business plan, you put in there how you're eventually going to be acquired. And then others is closer to what you had just said of not at all. Um, and then well, I think that it's a myth. I mean, honestly, I don't think, I, I don't think anyone starts, doesn't start a business that, Hey, eventually it's probably going to be acquired. Right. But it's not number one on the list of things. Yeah. That yeah. Um, yours is more, you have awareness of it and you're building a solid company, but you're not making the acquisition, the priority. Right. So yeah. Way, and, and day, if someone wanted to give us $200 million, I would be that. Sure. Okay. Here you go. Let's go <laughs> on. Yeah. on to the next thing. Yeah. So when you started dual boot, what was the main mission for doing it? I mean, you've done plenty of things, but what was unique and what was the why behind dual boot versus other ventures that you've done? Yeah, I think for Daniel, Ben and I, we had um, all seen how to successfully kind of help launch companies on the product side. And uh, we were working together at a previous company and uh, one of the previous founders there didn't really align with that vision. And we were like, I feel like we've got the secret sauce. We know how to get it done. Um, let's go, let's go do it ourselves. And, and that's, that was kind of the emphasis for, for it is, is that our other, you know, business partner at the time didn't want to focus on product only. They wanted to do some other things. And mm -hmm. so we ended up breaking off and, and then scaling from that side. Um, it was scary at the time. Um, but it, uh, we quickly grew and, and, and it's allowing us to do the things like, again, getting people to the starting line. And, and people say like, I feel like with startups, for example, getting people to product fit is getting people to that starting line. Like that's one of the hardest things is to figure out product fit companies that have been around for 10 years. My, my wife's company, even sometimes they're still figuring out product fit because they're constantly changing in the retail side of it. Um, people don't realize how hard product fit is. People don't realize also, like when I meet an entrepreneur that's rate, is, has generated revenue of a million dollars, I'm super impressed. I think too often we, we, we're impressed by the, you know, the large exits and things like that, but just getting to a million in revenue is few and far between in anything um, on that side. Man, I've all got right. all kinds of notes and- <laughs> I, I know, that's what my pause was there. I was, I was writing more things down. Um, so we're buttoning up on, on the hour uh, timeline here and we try keeping it close to that. So as we wrap this up, Todd, um, before we tell them where to, where to go to check you out and connect with you, are there any, any final thoughts, anything else you want to make sure that, that you're, you're given out to the listeners before we wrap this up? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, for me, like I said, I have a passion around giving back and charity and things like that. I think too often we go to the obvious answers, especially on business development. I'll give you a good example on this. Um, forever, I thought you had to go do happy hours and things like that for business development. And so um, this is pre-COVID and hopefully this will come back. But what I thought is how can I get a nonprofit introduced to the people that I care about 
to the people that we're doing work with. So instead of doing a happy hour and getting everyone away from their families from five to seven, coming in, drinking beers, you know, stupid crap happens a lot of times during those things. What can we do differently? So we said, why don't we partner with a nonprofit? In this case, it was the Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let's go do a service. They, they, they serve meals um, every breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they have volunteers that service them. So we, we have volunteers come down from 1030 to noon to service, um, to serve the people at the rescue mission. And then right next door, they have something called Community Matters Cafe, if you all are familiar with that. Oh yeah, um, I love that place. Yeah, so the people that are graduating from the rescue mission end up working at the Community Matters Cafe. So we ended up doing a, a, an, an outreach project or uh, event where we went and served from 1030 to, to, to 12. And then from 12 to one, we were served by the people we were serving. And so, it was a pretty cool circular thing. But what ended up happening was one, people didn't have to take away from their time and families at night when, you know, five to seven kids got athletic events and things like that. Um, two, uh, a lot of people would come to that and be like, oh, wow, look at this cool stuff Dual Boots doing. And they just liked being at a thing that was, that was happening in the community. Three, people started posting crazy amounts of pictures about those events. And four, we ended up getting more business because people, because I strategically invited the right people. And then I guess five, yeah, typically a half hour, happy hour, I'd have to invite 200 people, 30 people would show up. Towards the end of these events, I was inviting 30 people because that's all we could have. And 50 people wanted to come. The last time we had it right before COVID, I had to say to the people, I said, hey, if you don't get invited back to this, it's not that we don't love you. I just want to introduce more people to the rescue mission. Because yeah. I started feeling guilty because so many people are like, hey, can I bring my team and this team and that team? But again, I think it's just because something, you know, it's like the Dave Matthews who was just in town, Ants Marching. I'll never forget that song. Like, just because everyone's doing it one way doesn't mean that's the way you have to do it. And I think too often we get so wrapped up in this is the way it's always been done. Well, let me try something else. And that goes back to the 90 day things we talked about. One of our 90 day things was like, let's try a different event. We've done happy hours. Let's see if we do something else and see if it didn't work out. What's, what's the worst thing that happened, right? And then we just do another happy hour. Um, so I think for me, it's like, if you can intersect business with purpose, uh, good things are always going to happen. So I got to add one thing to that, just because we did the same thing when I was running Axiom creative group, we did, we built a, a habitat house and we invited all of our partners and our clients to join us. And it was hands down the best thing that we ever did. We actually made a difference, but it was so much fun. So I love that idea, what you're doing, where, you know, I'd encourage everybody to listen to this, do something that hits your passion zone that does serve somebody. That's an out of the box. That's an anything but typical moment right there that people will remember. Yep. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to keep you on here for two hours. We didn't, there were a lot of questions we didn't hit, but I, I love this <laughs> conversation, Todd. So I appreciate it. So where, where can people go to connect with you to check out um, any of the causes you want to shout out or, or dual boot, wherever you want yeah. to send them? Yeah. So they can go to dualbootpartners.com or dualboot.com um, or my LinkedIn page, which is Todd Bulow. I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I, got, I had to get off Facebook, but uh, I'm on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook still if you want. But I'm happy if people reach out to me, um, either, you know, send me a message on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect uh, on that front as well. 
Perfect. Just don't spam them with a bunch of email and unsolicited. That's not how to do it. <laughs> no, yes. Don't write the, and you know, I was guilty of this. I used to be like, hey, let's use, let's use a LinkedIn to send a message to the CIO of this company. And like, that stuff doesn't work. <laughs> say you heard, say you heard, you 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 heard my uh, the podcast, and and then that's that that's that's enough to get you connected. Well, cool. thank you so much, Todd. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you for having me.